1 John 2. 1 John 2. Starting at verse 3. The big idea of this next section is obedience. Obedience. Notice verse 3. Now by this we know, we know that we know Him. This Him is Jesus from verses 1 and 2. By this we know that we know Him if we keep His commandments. Let me pull four basic principles from these four verses. Um, we're going to principalize this section. Four verses, four principles. We just read verse 3, principle 1 from verse 3. Obedience is evidence of someone's salvation. Obedience, this is obedience to God, is some evidence. There's more. Obedience to God is some evidence of someone's salvation. This verse encourages what we call assurance of salvation. Assurance of someone's salvation. 19th century evangelist Dwight Moody was one of this nation's greatest evangelists. Um, he founded Moody Church in Chicago. He founded Moody Bible Institute and Moody Publishers. And I just learned his last sermon, um, his last crusade sermon was on November 16, 1899, and uh, it was held in Kansas City. Um, I wasn't there then. Uh, it was just before I was born. Um, but Dwight Moody said this, I have never met a Christian who was any good in the work of Christ who did not have the absolute assurance of his salvation. The reason that's so critical is because after someone has received salvation, he needs continuing assurance of that salvation. Salvation was never intended to be a question mark. Salvation was never intended to be up for grabs. No one that has, no one that has received genuine salvation should be unsure about that. The first diagnostic question from the famous International Evangelism Explosion curriculum is, do you know for sure you're going to heaven? I changed the wording some, but I have asked that basic question thousands of times. And so often the response is, I'm not sure. I'm just not sure. That's the reason assurance of salvation is essential. The actual words saved and salvation mean rescued, rescued from harm, ruin, or loss. We use that word saved in normal conversation to describe someone being rescued from a dangerous or potentially fatal situation. Lifeguards save people from drowning. Firefighters save people from burning structures. Um, our general practitioner um, is Dr. John Holman. Dr. Holman is a member of the LDS Church, so chances are He's not going to see this sermon on our website. He is, though, an amazing, amazing physician. And because about 18 months ago, because of his aggressive approach to an enlarged mole, he found that seemed suspicious. It was melanoma cancer. But because he had been able to detect it before it had advanced, he literally saved me from the same disease that my own father died from. And I was grateful.
Notice the definition. In a spiritual sense, salvation is a spiritual transaction that transpires at a precise moment in time, space, history, and results in someone being rescued, rescued, being saved from sin and the eternal consequences from sin. And those eternal consequences are an eternal retribution in a cosmic compartment we call hell. And God wants us to be assured of that salvation. Catholicism denies that someone can actually have assurance of his salvation. According to the Council of Trent, a famous council in Catholicism, 1545 to 1563, quote, any believer's assurance of the pardon of his sins is a vain and ungodly confidence. That's shocking. Cardinal Roberto uh, Bellarmine was a Jesuit theologian from that same time period, and he said that, quote, assurance is a prime error of heretics. According to this medieval cardinal, no one can be certain No one can be sure he has received salvation until after he dies. Unless I'm mistaken, it's too late then. And to actually think that someone can be certain is considered heretical. That's strange because 1 John teaches that salvation can be sure. A sure and certain thing here and now. And we're going to see that as we progress through this book. If someone doesn't have assurance of his salvation, if his spiritual status is in doubt, and if he constantly questions if he's a Christian, then one of three distinct possibilities is true. We don't have time to expand on these, but let me mention these. For those of you who've had our Essentials to Discipleship course, I'm stealing some of just some of this material from that course. One, it is possible that this person doesn't have salvation. It's possible this person doesn't have salvation if he has these doubts and questions about his spiritual status. Meaning it's possible this person isn't a Christian. Those questions and doubts could be, could be from the Holy Spirit convicting us in an attempt to convince us we need a for sure salvation. That, that happened to Hopi. Um, not long after our marriage, we were married in Kansas City and then moved to East Texas so I could continue attending college. And uh, I remember uh, she started having constant nagging doubts uh, about her spiritual status. And and she would say to me, I'm not sure. And because I was foolish, I blew it off and I said, I'm sure you're a believer. Now, you've got all the evidence. I'm sure you are. And I shouldn't have done that, but I did that. And these doubts continued uh, until after some months, she was overwhelmed. And she decided to eliminate those doubts and determined to once and forever trust Jesus and receive salvation. I remember it was on a Sunday morning before church at our campus apartment. She knelt beside the bed and said yes to Jesus. Um, I remember that moment. 
And that salvific experience uh, got rid of those doubts. And I don't believe she's doubted again since. Second, it is possible that this person is a bona fide Christian, meaning a genuine, authentic Christian, and does have salvation, but doesn't have the assurance of his salvation. A genuine Christian can have salvation, uh, but not have the assurance of that salvation. That means he's going to heaven, because, but because he's never sure about that, he's a nervous wreck getting there. That's not a good thing. Third, it is possible that this person is also a bona fide Christian, a genuine, authentic Christian, and Satan has tried to deceive him into thinking he's not. Satan has tried to deceive the Christian into thinking he's not one. Satan is a master deceiver. We have seen that. And in some cases, he uses certain tactics in order to deceive someone into thinking he's not a Christian. The reason Satan does that is because all he has to do to render a Christian useless and ineffective is to deceive him and con him into thinking he's not actually saved. So there are those three possibilities. Verse 3 encourages assurance of salvation. Notice John said, by this we know. In the original language, that word know comes from a verb meaning to be absolutely sure about something. This isn't assuming something. This isn't being hopeful. This isn't a guess. This is a statement of absolute certainty. And John said we can be certain that we know Jesus. To know Jesus means to know him in a relational sense. This knowing doesn't mean to know him only in a cranial, intellectual sense, but to know him in an experiential, relational sense. This knowing him is synonymous to salvation. This knowing is a permanent relational connection to Jesus in salvation. So John said we can be certain that we have salvation. We can be sure we have Jesus if, now notice the second half of the sentence, verse 3 continued, now by this we know that we know him, Jesus, if we keep his commandments. That's obedience. That's obedience. Don't misunderstand this. Obedience isn't the cause of someone's salvation. But obedience is evidence of someone's salvation. Some people read that word commandments and see that as a direct reference to the Ten Commandments in the Mosaic Law. Yes and no. These commandments John mentions include those Ten Commandments, but these commandments mentioned here are not limited to those Ten Commandments. Commandments are found throughout Scripture in both Testaments. I sometimes use the synonym injunction, injunction to describe biblical commandments. An injunction is defined as an authoritative order an authoritative order. And there is no greater authoritative order than those orders and those mandates prescribed in Scripture. 
do not murder is an injunction. Do not murder is as binding on us as do not murder. Murdering isn't as consequential as murder, but God holds us accountable for both injunctions. Encourage one another is an injunction. Encourage one another is as binding on us as another injunction. Don't be envious. Forgive one another is an injunction. Forgiving one another is as binding on us as another injunction. Avoiding fornication, immoral sexual relations, and on and on and on. Commitment and obedience to biblical commands, biblical injunctions, is evidence of someone's salvation. Verse 4, he who says, I know him, meaning to know Jesus in a relational sense, he who has made that profession, I know Jesus, and does not, does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Second principle from verse 4, obedience proves someone's commitment to Jesus is authentic. Obedience to those commands proves someone's relational commitment to Jesus is authentic. Remember, actions speak louder than words. Someone can profess to be a Christian, but if on a consistent basis, disobedience is the word that characterizes him, then he's self-deceived, and according to this, he's a liar. He's a fraud and a counterfeit. He's not an authentic Christian. Verse 5, but whoever keeps his word, obedience, truly the love of God is perfected, perfected meaning completed, in him. Notice, by this, by this obedience, we know that we are in him. A third principle from verse 5. Obedience completes someone's love toward Jesus. Obedience completes someone's love toward Jesus. John 14, verse 15. Jesus, who is God in human form, God incarnate. We celebrate that at Christmas. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. It's possible to keep Christ's commandments and not love him. But it's not possible to love Christ and not keep his commandments. I spoke to someone on the phone uh, some time ago, someone I suspected to be a fraud. This person had called me. I had been warned about this person. And I guess I was just in a mood that day. And uh, I, I responded to the call and this woman after going on and on and on about herself, she was so self-consumed. She said, I, I just love Jesus. I said, okay, that's good. Where do you attend church? She responded, it's none of your business. I said, it sort of is. I'm a pastor. So where do you attend church? She said, I don't have to tell you. I said, you just did. You don't enchant church, and you don't love Jesus, and stop pretending that you do. It wasn't a long conversation after that. <laughs> Verse 6, 
He who says he abides in him, Jesus, ought himself also to walk just as he, Jesus, walked. Now, don't misunderstand that. That doesn't mean since Jesus walked on water, we are also expected to walk on water. No, I tried that once. Uh, This word walk is a grammatical figure of speech that means our conduct, our conduct. And since walking implies continuous action, one step after another in progression. This verse is teaching that our continuous conduct and our continuous behavior is to resemble Jesus. The fourth principle from verse 6. Obedience results in Christ-like conduct. Obedience results in Christ-like conduct. As Christians, we are called on to in a progressive experiential sense resemble Jesus more and more and more in both our attitude and actions and reactions. That's the reason the bumper sticker reads, please be patient with me. God isn't finished with me yet. Christians are still under construction. If we cooperate with God, then God can conform us in a gradual, progressive sense, conform us to becoming more and more like Jesus. And that construction project isn't finished until heaven. Now notice the definition. Obedience is doing what we are told to do, doing it when we are told to do it, and doing it with a right heart attitude. Let's tear that definition apart into those three different phrases. Phrase one, obedience is doing what we are told to do. Most people struggle doing that on a consistent basis. As an example, the Federal Drug Administration is deliberating how to resolve the, quote, other drug problem. This other drug problem is the label attached to someone that doesn't take the medicine and or medicines prescribed to him from his doctor as the instructions on the bottle tell him to do. Some people just forget to take their medication. Some people start feeling better and then just toss the medication. As an example, just 51% just barely over half of patients suffering from high blood pressure actually use their hypertension medication as prescribed. Former President Clinton stopped his cholesterol-lowering medication, and sometime after that stoppage, he needed open-heart surgery. Even doctors, even physicians, take their own prescriptions just 79% of the time. This other drug problem is costing this nation on an annual basis an estimated $177 billion in medical bills and other related losses. That's because we struggle with simple obedience. Doing what we are told to do means partial obedience is disobedience. Partial obedience is disobedience. If a child is instructed to pick up all his toys, and he picks up just some toys, then he has been obedient in part, but not obedient in total. That's considered partial obedience, and partial obedience is still disobedience. 
The Old Testament character Saul is a classic example of someone that was obedient in part, meaning Saul was obedient up to a point. God had instructed Saul and his armies to completely annihilate a people group called the Amalekites. The Amalekites were a tribe of nomadic people that were one of Israel's worst enemies. Saul was, an, was ancient Israel's first king, the first one to serve in that capacity. David would succeed him. And God instructed Saul to completely exterminate that entire tribe of people. First Samuel 15, notice verse 3. God said to Saul, now go and attack Amalek. Amalek is a reference to those Amalekites. And utterly destroy all that they have and do not spare them. But kill both man and woman, infant and nursing child, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. This is what God instructed Saul to do. Saul was to obliterate, to annihilate, to eradicate to utterly wipe the Amalekites off the face of the earth. Now we can discuss the morality of that uh, command at another time, but that were, those were God's instructions. And Saul did that almost. He almost did that. And remember, almost doesn't count, except in horseshoes and hand grenades. So because Saul had been just partial in his obedience, God sent Samuel, the prophet, to see him. Notice verse 10. Now the word of the Lord came to Samuel, saying, so God is speaking to Samuel, verse 11, I greatly regret that I have set up Saul as king, for he has turned back from following me and has not has not performed my commandments. Meaning Saul had been disobedient to those instructions from God. And it, meaning that announcement from God about Saul's disobedience, grieved Samuel. And he cried out to the Lord all night. He was so upset. Verse 12. So when Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul, it was told Samuel, saying, Saul went to Carmel. This is not Carmel on the coast in California different Carmel. Saul went to Carmel and indeed, notice, he set up a monument for himself. He set up a monument for himself, meaning dedicated to himself. That's total arrogance and egotism. And he has gone on around, passed by, and gone down to Gilgal. Verse 13, then Samuel went to Saul and Saul said to him, blessed are you of the Lord. Notice, Saul said, I have performed the commandment of the Lord. Paraphrase, Saul said uh, to Samuel, I did what God told me to do. That would be a lie. Verse 14, but Samuel said, what then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowering, lowing of the oxen which I hear? Samuel questioned that response. And said to Saul, then if you did all that God instructed you to do, then how come I can hear sheep and oxen? Remember, in addition to the tribe itself, you were instructed to also destroy all the livestock. 
So, so what's this sound about? Verse 15, and Saul said, they have bought them, brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have utterly destroyed. Saul said to Samuel, uh, listen, we destroyed most of the livestock, but we saved some of the best animals to use them as sacrificial animals in worship to God. He tried to justify what he did or justify what he didn't do that he was instructed to do. It's extremely doubtful that the actual intention was to sacrifice those animals. Even if it was though, it was still disobedience. Verse 16, Then Samuel said to Saul, Be quiet. Paraphrased as, shut up, Saul, listen to me. And I will tell you what the Lord said to me last night. And he, Saul, said to Samuel, speak on. Verse 17, so Samuel said, when you were little in your own eyes, were you not head of the tribes of Israel? It did not the Lord anoint you king over Israel? Verse 18, now the Lord sent you on a mission and said, go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Verse 19, why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? The big question from Samuel was, Saul, why weren't you obedient to God's instructions? Why did you swoop down on the spoil? And do evil in the sight of the Lord. Verse 20, And Saul said to Samuel, But I have obeyed the voice of the Lord, and gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me, and brought back Agag, king of Amalek. I have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. This man is so confused. Verse 21, But the people, this is the second time he does this, Notice he's blame shifting. He's blaming the people for doing this. Forgetting, ignoring the fact that as king, he was the one that gave them permission to confiscate the forbidden spoils from battle. He's shifting blame to the people. This is the reason we know Saul was a politician. Because politicians, listen to them, are never, ever at fault. Politicians are experts at the blame game. But the people, Saul said, took of the plunder, sheep and oxen, the best of the things which should have been utterly destroyed, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. Verse 22, so Samuel said, Has the Lord... Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Notice this. Behold, to obey, to obey is better than sacrifice. And to heed, meaning heed God's instructions, is better than the fat of rams. Verse 23, for rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. Let that one sink in. Children and teenagers that talk back to their parents are committing a sin, according to this, equal to witchcraft. 
And stubbornness it is as iniquity and idolatry. I've never worshipped an idol, but I have been stubborn about some things I shouldn't have been stubborn about. And notice that God equates them. Because you have rejected Saul, you have rejected the word of the Lord, he also has rejected you from being king. So Saul literally forfeited his throne over Israel because of his partial obedience. And the entire nation would also suffer consequences because of that partial obedience. Those Amalekites that had escaped Saul's troops over time repopulated themselves and continued to harass and plunder the Israelites in successive generations that covered centuries. First Samuel describes an Amalekite raid on a Judean village uh, called Ziklag. Ziklag. David owned some real estate there. Those Amalekites burned that village to the ground and then took captive all the women and children. David and his men were then forced to chase down those Amalekites and rescue the hostages. But in the process, more Amalekites escaped. The final mention of Amalekites is found in the book of Esther. We did a nine-part series through Esther. Phenomenal book. A man named Haman was a member of the court of the Persian Empire. He had been appointed the principal minister for a king named Ahasuerus. Ahasuerus. Haman was an anti-Semite. He concocted a scheme to commit genocide and wipe out the Jewish people. He deceived Ahasuerus into giving him permission to have all the Jewish people in the Persian Empire executed. Ahasuerus didn't fully understand what he had agreed to. He had been deceived. But God arranged for the king's most recent wife, a Jewess named Esther. God arranged for Esther to intercede, and she informed Ahasuerus that Haman was plotting to murder her and murder the other Jews. That enraged Ahasuerus so much that he had Haman hanged, and the Jewish people survived. But the man that had caused all that trouble was Haman. And get this, Haman was a descendant from Agag, a king of the Amalekites. All of that and more happened as a result from Saul's partial obedience. Obedience is doing what we are told to do in totality. Second phrase. And doing it when we are told to do it. Procrastinated obedience is disobedience. Procrastinated obedience is still disobedience. As a child and then an adolescent, if our parents instructed us to do something, we were expected to do that something at the time we were told to do it. Sometimes it was because there would be a time demand on that something to be done. It had to be done by a specific time. It couldn't wait. And sometimes our parents wanted us to do it now because our parents were smart and understood it was probable 
we would procrastinate on doing what we were told to do. Procrastination wasn't acceptable at our house, and procrastination isn't acceptable to God. As an example, people that receive Jesus, people that exercise faith in Him and receive Him, are commanded, part of the Great Commission, commanded to be baptized in water after that decision in order to publicly announce that decision. And I realize scheduling can be problematic and people have different schedules sometimes it's hard to match but Christian converts in the New Testament were baptized minutes or just hours after receiving Jesus I wish we could keep our baptistry filled with water warm water filled with water 24 7 365 so if I pray with someone to receive Jesus at a restaurant or in a home we could run down here, get some people together to witness that, baptize that person inside the hour. That would be a logistical nightmare, so we can't do that. But baptism isn't something to procrastinate on. If you have received Jesus through faith, if you have trusted Him and determined to follow Him, then, and you haven't been baptized since that conversion moment, then sign up to be baptized on December 4th. Procrastinated obedience is still disobedience. Notice the definition. Obedience is doing what we are told to do, doing it when we are told to do it, and this third phrase, doing it with a right heart attitude. And a wrong heart attitude is still disobedience. A wrong heart attitude is still disobedience. There's an internal component to obedience, and that's the component of attitude. It's not enough to do what we're told to do. It's not enough to do what we're told to do when we're told to do it. But there needs to be a right heart attitude motivating us to do what we do. A, classical, a classic biblical attitude of obedience from a wrong heart attitude was Jonah. Remember Jonah? God commissioned Jonah to warn the evil inhabitants of Nineveh that he would pronounce judgment on them unless the people repented. Nineveh was the capital of the ancient Assyrian Empire. The ruins of Nineveh are on the outskirts of modern-day Mosul, Iraq. Archaeologists have done extensive digging into those ruins. The Assyrians were ruthless people and the greatest threat to ancient Israel. The Assyrians invented the battering ram. Other societies improved on that. The Assyrians were the first nation to require all eligible men to serve in the military. The Assyrians were cruel. Their armies cut off victims' ears and noses and skinned victims alive and impaled them on stakes. One Assyrian ruler left behind. Archaeologists have found a series of tablets describing those atrocities. This ruler said, I flayed, flayed, as in filleting fish, I flayed many people right through my land and then draped their skins over the wall. I burned their adolescent children and a pillar of heads, human heads, I erected in front of the city. The Assyrians were the first 
to use psychological warfare because those accounts of heinous crimes would spread to other cities and peoples and frighten them into surrendering. The Assyrian troops uh, were so brutal in their military campaigns that those men even put themselves through hell. Those men reported experiences that modern psychologists would argue are symptoms of post-traumatic stress. Imagine ancient PTSD. The horrors and guilt of murdering and torturing innocent people wrecked havoc on their psyches. Once returning home, those men would claim to be haunted by the spirits of those victims, those men had tormented and murdered. Jonah's mission was to preach to those Ninevites, those Assyrians. After an unfortunate encounter with a large fish, Jonah did get to Nineveh. And Jonah did fulfill his assignment. And to his absolute shock, Nineveh repented. And remember, Nineveh had an estimated population of some 600,000 people. That entire population repented. But Jonah still had a bad attitude. At the end of that narrative... Uh, describes Jonah sulking and pouting because God was merciful and God spared Nineveh from judgment. That's not what Jonah wanted. Most Bible commentators argue that Jonah was a racist because as a Jewish person, he, he completely devalued the ruthless and cruel polytheistic Assyrians Jonah was upset that God cared enough about them to spare them from judgment. Jonah wanted the Ninevites to be punished for their crimes against humanity and punished for their crimes against God. And that didn't happen. Jonah wasn't fully obedient because he had a wrong heart attitude in doing what he did. Now, Isaiah was someone who had a different attitude. Isaiah 6 records a vision that Isaiah had, where he sees God sitting on his throne in heaven. And that is a fascinating account. Notice verse 8. And also I, this is Isaiah, heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Us, meaning a reference to the triune Godhead. Then I said, Isaiah said, Here am I. Send me. Isaiah became a prophet at that point. Notice the explanation point after Isaiah's statement, here am I. An explanation point is used in a sentence to indicate strong feelings or show emphasis. Isaiah identified himself to God as someone excited and anxious to be available to God. Isaiah was a a big kid after God said, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Isaiah goes, God, me, 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 pick me, send me. That's the attitude obedience requires. Prolific author Charles Swindoll, he has some 70 books to his credit. And he still pastors in North Dallas at age 88. Still pastoring. He has a small sign on his desk that presents the thought-provoking question, what are your motives? Paraphrased as, why do you do what you do? 
because motive matters. There are three basic motivations to obedience. One is we have to. Someone said sometimes it's easier to do what we have to do than it is to suffer the consequences of not doing that. And avoiding negative consequences is a legitimate reason to be obedient. Until I turned 18, I had to, I had to attend 12 grades of formal schooling. The consequences of not doing that would have been severe and should have been severe. As a senior, I remember taking the college admissions SAT test on a Saturday morning. A perfect SAT score is 1,600. I literally cannot remember my SAT score, but I seriously doubt it was impressive. I got up that morning and told my mom, I said, I don't feel good. I actually felt terrible. Understand, in our house, I'm the oldest of five. All experimentation was done on me. <clears throat> they corrected what didn't work for the other ones. <clears throat> I wasn't given much options as a child or as an adolescent. And my mother said, after I said, I I'm not feeling well, she said, you're taking that test. You're going and taking that test. And that wasn't negotiable. I believe it was a three-hour test. I, I can't remember for certain. And I was miserable the entire time. It was so difficult to concentrate. I was literally in the chair at the desk, shaking from the chills throughout the entire exam. Turns out there was a reason for that. I got home and I had a 103.5 degree fever. And my mom said, oh, I guess you were sick. <laughs> Sometimes we have no choice but to do something, we have to. There's a second motivation to obedience. We need to. We need to. We need to lose weight. That's me. We need to be on time more consistently. Some of our people have never learned that lesson. I can give you the names of people, I promise, will be late to every service. We need to spend less and save more. We need to right a wrong we committed. We need to forgive someone that wronged us. We need a better grade point average. We need to find a better job. We need to do this and we need to do that. And needing to do something is an acceptable form of motivation. The third motivation form is the better form is we want to. We want to. My dad told me, that if God said jump, we should be so anxious to be obedient that our response should be to ask how high. A friend of mine named Vernon Brewer started a missions organization called World Help. On one of his trips to Africa, he and his team arranged to conduct an evangelistic crusade in one of the larger villages. The services were scheduled to start at 7.30 each night. But the people would come at 5.30, more than two hours ahead of service time. More than 600 of them would come each night and cram themselves into this building no larger than this room. It was primitive. 
It had a rough concrete floor. There were some benches with no backs. And it was almost 120 degrees inside that room. There weren't enough benches, so most of the people sat on the floor or stood. There literally wasn't enough room to move around. The people prayed for two solid hours and then stood and sang and sang from their hearts and sang loud. And unlike our congregation, no one was not singing. Vernon has preached in hundreds of churches across this nation, and he said he had never heard singing like that in the States. One of the songs the people sang was this, I am ready to obey thy word. I am ready to obey thy word. I am ready to obey the written word of God. Those people loved God so much that they couldn't wait to hear from the preacher to learn what God wanted them to do. Because to a person, those people were committed to obedience. And leaving that village, Vernon said these were his parting words to those black brothers and sisters. He said, all my adult life, I have prayed for God to raise up missionaries in the United States to send to Africa. I'm going home now, and I'm going to pray for God to raise up missionaries in Africa to send to the United States. And that would be a good thing. Ephesians 4, 27, paraphrase reads, We are to give place to the devil. And the primary means of giving Satan access to us is disobedience. Notice the principle. The point at which we stop short of full obedience. And at that point, it becomes disobedience. The point at which we stop short of full obedience to God is the point at which we have permitted Satan at least a partial toehold in our hearts. Richard Wormbrandt, born 1909, died 2001, was a Romanian evangelical Lutheran pastor and professor. He was also of Jewish descent. In 1948, he publicly said communism and Christianity are incompatible, and he was correct. Get this, Richard preached in bomb shelters and he rescued Jews during World War II. As a result, he was imprisoned and tortured by the then communist regime of Romania, which maintained a strict policy of state atheism. He spent a total of 14 years in prison, and then, through a series of negotiation, was ransomed for $10,000. He was released from his first imprisonment in 1956 after eight and a half years. He was released and warned not to continue preaching, but he was obedient to God. He refused to cooperate with the communist authorities, and he resumed his work in the underground church. So he was arrested again in 1959 and sentenced to 25 years that time. During that second imprisonment, he was beaten and tortured. Torture included mutilation, burning, and being locked in a large frozen icebox. His body bore the scars of that torture for the rest of his life. He later recalled 
or he counted having the soles of his feet, meaning the bottoms of his feet, beaten until the flesh was torn off. And then the next day, the soles of his feet were beaten some more to where the bones of his feet were exposed. He claimed there were not words to describe that pain. Imagine attempting to walk on feet that had been beaten to that extent. Richard spent three years imprisoned in solitary confinement. That confinement was in a prison cell 12 feet underground. It had no light and no windows. There was no sound because even the guards wore felt on the soles of their shoes. He recounted that he maintained his sanity by sleeping during the day, staying awake at night, and exercising his mind and soul through composing and then actually preaching a sermon each night. There's no one there to hear it, but he's going through the motions of preparing a message and his mind, and then preaching that message. Due to his extraordinary memory, he was able to recall more than 350 of those sermons. People, that is so far above my pay grade. I don't even remember what I did last Sunday. And some of those sermons he remembered and included in one of his 18 books. His most famous publication was entitled Tortured for Christ. His colleagues in Romania after he'd been released, urged him to leave the country and work for religious freedom from a location less dangerous. So Richard and his wife, Sabina, who had also been imprisoned, immigrated to the United States and dedicated themselves to publicizing and helping persecuted Christians. In 1966, he testified in Washington, D.C. before the U.S. Senate's Internal Security Subcommittee. He removed his shirt in front of the television cameras to reveal the numerous scars from his torture. Then he founded an organization known as the Voice of the Martyrs. And he expended himself through that organization in publicizing religious persecution in communist countries. Voice of the Martyrs is still a thriving organization and it has since expanded to minister to persecuted Christians in Muslim countries. Richard said he learned something from his com communist captors. He said just as those guards permitted no room for Jesus in their hearts, he decided he wouldn't permit the smallest room for Satan in his heart. And he didn't. He remained obedient until heaven. Let's bow our heads. Father, thank you for this time. I hope it's made sense. We are called to be obedient to you in all that we think, say, and do. Help us. Help us to strive to do that. I'm sure we'll fail from time to time. We're human. But God, help us to keep that as our intention and our goal to please you through being obedient to all that you have commanded us. I commit this message to you and to the people here and I hope and pray it will have an impact on our thinking and our behavior as we leave this place. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.